Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. And as you do, as a kid, uh, who am I kidding, still as an adult, um, I like watching bug zappers. At least that's what I call them. Um, you know, the little bug zappers, um, and I call them that because that's what they do, right? They, they zap bugs, like bright light in the center uh, that attracts the bug. The bug flies or crawls into the light, and what happens? Zap, right? Gone, <laughs> taken care of in an instant. I like that. Call me twisted, call me whatever, it never gets old. The bigger the bug, the bigger the zap, the better. And I bring this up not because of the bugs or not because of the zapping, because, but because of the irresistible attraction that the bugs have to the light. The bugs just can't help themselves, can they? They're like, ah, oh, the light. <laughs> I got to go to the light. I want to be near the light. And they make their way to the light. Zap. So take away the lethal component of the light. The lethal component does not help my illustration at all. <laughs> it hurts my illustration. <laughs> but if you flip the light from being a lethal light to being a light being a source of everlasting hope. Then I'm like, you know, that's a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. A bug zapper. <laughs> a light. An irresistible, attractional light in the midst of the darkness. People just checking, have, just having to check out the marvelous light. And if you're finding yourself in this moment thinking, yeah, I think Jeremy's lost it. <laughs> Just follow along with me a bit longer, if you will. See, last week we concluded an elongated section of scripture, kind of following a narrative that has spanned a few weeks. A section starting with Peter and John healing a, a lame beggar. A man who, by faith in Christ alone, was healed both physically and spiritually of his, his ailments, and which left the people who passed by him at the temple gate each and every single week and each and every single day astounded by what they had witnessed, naturally wondering, like, how is this possible that this man could be healed? Which then gave Peter and John the opportunity to do what? To preach Christ. It gave them the opportunity to preach the great truths of the gospel, which soon led to what for them? Their imprisonment. They're arrested by the religious leaders. They're thrown into to prison. They're eventually, just like the next day, led, brought before the same high priestly family who had Jesus crucified, and then led to a threat for them not to speak the name of Christ anymore. The threat essentially being, if you don't stop preaching Christ, you can expect to receive the same fate that he received. 
And then they were released. They were released and to go back and tell the other apostles, to tell this young, fledgling church of the threat that then had been laid down. And how did the church respond when they heard this news? They went to the Lord in prayer. And they prayed for the ability, if you remember from last week, to do what? To continue to speak the gospel with all boldness. To continue to speak the words of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with all boldness. They prayed, essentially, for the ability to shine brightly in the midst of the darkness. And how did the Lord respond to their prayer? They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So in the midst of an ever-increasing persecution, a persecution that will eventually force some to, to flee from Jerusalem, flee into other regions and other cities and other nations because the persecution will become so intense, they pray for the ability to continue to speak the gospel with boldness. They pray for the ability to shine bright in the midst of the darkness. And so the question I have for us this morning is what does such a church like this look like? What type of church produces such an irresistible light to a lost and dying world. Even in the midst of increasing persecution that's attempting to silence its gospel witness and snuff out its light altogether. What does it look like? Well, let's take a look. Picking up this morning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, for they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. <coughs> now, Talk about an attractional light. Because that's exactly the description that we have here with the church in Jerusalem. A very attractional light. Especially when we consider their context. And the persecution that they were threatened with and about to experience. They're standing out here in stark contrast to the world around them swimming against the tide of an ever-increasing current, if you will, which naturally draws attention, does it not? Naturally brings about the, the questions of why and what and how 
All those type of questions, which then leads to what? It leads to the opportunity to share God's, of God's great grace and the hope that we, they, have in Christ. How? Oh, let me tell you. And that's what we have here with the church in Jerusalem. A very bright and attractional light. Why? Well, four reasons. One, because of its unity. Which brings us to point one. A healthy church dwells in unity. You could even say a healthy, attractional church dwells in unity. And there's something very attractional about a unified church, isn't there? Especially when we consider our culture. A culture that is filled with what? So much disunity. Disunity that sadly even finds its way into the broader church culture. So much of the worldly division manifesting itself within the local churches today. If the last three years have taught us anything, it's taught us this, is it not? Such disunity doing the very opposite of attracting us or anyone else to the church, which Christ. People being like, why would I ever want that? Why would I need that? I, I can go have a much simpler life over here. Why do I need to be a part of a, a church with so much disunity? But look with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, of one spirit, praying with one collective voice, as we looked at last week, they're, they're unified in their fellowship. As verse 32 continues, no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, by saying they had everything in common, this isn't to imply sameness. It's not to say that they, they left their, their individuality completely behind. And then they were all exactly the same from, from that point forward. Because remember, these believers have come together from where? All over the world, right? They've come together from all, all over the world. They've come from vastly different cultural backgrounds. Yes, the majority of them are Jewish by descent at this point. But remember, at Pentecost, just days prior, Acts chapter 2, verse 9, they are Parisians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So we're told they're, they're from all over. And they had about 3,000 come to faith in one day. So about 3,000 culturally different and individually different people united together in Christ and together with one another. And they've been coming to faith, what? Day by day, ever since. So the number is continuing to grow. The diversity and so much of this is continuing to grow. And yet we're told they had what? Everything in common. Which means 
What? <laughs> Does it mean that upon coming to faith in Christ, they now all wore the same clothes? They all got like the same shirt? <laughs> Said, all right, now we all put on this shirt and we're all going to have this hairstyle and we're going to listen to this music and we're all going to have this style of home. And is, is that what it's saying? No, that's not what it's saying at all. Again, having everything in common doesn't equal sameness. doesn't mean the complete loss of individuality or even of one's cultural heritage. We'll look at this further in a moment. But this isn't communism. See, one of the beautiful things about the church, one of the most attractional things about the church is the beauty of so much unity in the midst of so much diversity. The ability to be able to be united in such an intimate way despite all of our differences. This was Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verse 21. As he prayed that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they all may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus here praying that his followers, that his forthcoming church would be unified as one, just as he is one with the Father. Now you talk about unity. You talk about unity, there's unity. That, that's it for sure. But here's the question, for what purpose is this unity, does this unity exist? What's the purpose or the desire behind Jesus' prayer? He tells us that the world may believe that you have sent me. That the world would be attracted to Christ through the unity of the church. Attracted to one body made up of culturally different members sharing a common unifying faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what's the result of such a healthy and attractional church? The gospel spreads more and more and more as people are attracted to the light. People are like, what? <laughs> Put this in modern day. People are like, what? A, a church of Republicans and Democrats? And what? Even people who refuse to align with any political a party? <laughs> They're able to dwell in unity? I got to check this out. <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. Never seen such a thing. How is this possible? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer? His name is Jesus. And that brings us to point two. A healthy church preaches Christ with great power. Look with me at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So in spite of all the pressures to remain silent and all the in, ensuing threats, the apostles did, get this, 
exactly what Jesus commissioned them to do in Acts 1.8. That's so radical <laughs> to obey the king. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you remember what he commissioned them to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Jesus saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Okay, so who, what came upon them at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit, they, they have the power of the Holy Spirit, and right now they are witnesses where? Jerusalem. They're following forth with God's plan. And see, Jesus never said, you're going to be my witnesses if, the, if it's safe in these places or if it's convenient in these places or if it's easy. He just says, I'm going to give you the power to be my witnesses in these places. The expectation simply being what? Obedience. Go be my witnesses, no matter the cost. And so with great power, great power from the Holy Spirit, they did just that. But now as we look last week, they still had to pray for boldness, didn't they? They weren't just naturally bold, like, all right. No, they, they had to pray for boldness, still had to, to continue to tap into the power that they had been given, couldn't do this in their own strength. Neither can we. But the expectation remained, be my witnesses. Because this type of bold faithfulness in the midst of such opposition does what? It puts forth a very attractional light. People being like, what in the world is this message that they preach? Who, who is this Jesus they proclaim that they'd be willing to risk so much? And again, it's like, well, I'm glad you asked. The answer? Let me tell you about God's great grace. Which brings us to point number three. A healthy church understands they are recipients of great grace, of God's great grace. Look again with me at verse 33, this time focusing on the second part. But we will read it in its entirety just to give us the context. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Meaning what? Meaning that their hearts overflowed as a result of the great grace that they had received. Overflowed at the thought of the holy, holy, holy God bestowing such great grace upon them. Especially in light of understanding the magnitude of their sin and offense to their holy God. The only response is, oh, such grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. That's what is overflowing, overwhelming from them, meaning it's not something we can contain within ourselves. 
is contained, this grace, if we've experienced this grace, you know, the more we're aware of God's great grace upon us, the more we're going to be willing to extend great grace to others. To speak of it, to talk about it, to practice it. And again, the world looks at such grace and is like, I've never seen such a thing. How is it possible for you to forgive like that after such an offense as this? Like, how can you do this? How can you extend grace in this situation? Again, let me tell you, it's because God, through Christ, has forgiven me and has extended his grace to me, not by anything that I have done, but only by his grace. Let me tell you more about him. And a healthy church understands this and never moves past this understanding. We can never move past God's grace. (laughs) That we are recipients of God's grace. And thus it's this great grace that overflows from our lives and our lips. Like the lame beggar. Oh, what a beautiful picture. The lame beggar leaping for joy in the temple, giving praise to God after he was healed. I mean, what other reaction can he have, right? He couldn't walk for 40 years, and now he's healed. What are you going to do, just sit there? Eh, you know, that's great. I'm healed. No. going to leap. I'm going to run. I'm going to dance. I'm going to sing. I'm going to give praise to the king. It sounds like a song. All because of God's grace. We're compelled to tell the world of how we who once were dead in our sin are now alive in Christ. Not by our works, but God's grace, which is a bright, attractional light in such a graceless culture. A culture that associates the church more with judgment and more with condemnation than it does with any notion of grace. And then sees it as this grace, like, how is this possible? And brings us to our final point of, of how a healthy church cares for one another's needs. Look again with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that they had any, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, for they had everything in common. As well as look down with me at verse 34 and 35 that read, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now obviously there's, there's a lot taking place here. And we've already briefly looked at how everything in common in verse 32 doesn't doesn't equal sameness doesn't mean the the complete loss of one's personal identity this isn't referring to again some communistic way of living not not at all as one author puts it communism says what is yours is everyone's christianity on the other hand says what is mine is yours do you notice the difference do you see the difference that is there 
communism is something forced upon you. You don't have a choice. But what we have here is sacrificial generosity that flows from the heart of the believer. It's flowing out of the heart. It's the new and now natural desire of the Christian heart to care for one another in need. This care coming in two forms. The first and likely most obvious being through material or physical care. We read verses 32 and verse 34, and that's what sticks out, right? There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And as we looked at this in chapter 2, this wasn't that they came to faith in Christ and and then went and sold absolutely everything that they had in one full swoop and just gave it all up. They didn't just give it all away. No, they were told they met in one another's houses to pray and to break bread, right? You can't meet in a house that you don't have. So they actually own homes. They're using those homes for a common good, a common purpose. So what we have here is what appears to be a gradual selling of assets, not selling everything at once, but selling and doing so as needs arose within the church to help care for one another. And that's important. Notice that these were needs within the church. This was caring for one another. Now, there's times and place for, for caring for those outside, but we're talking about here is it's caring for those within the church, caring for one another. This particular care wasn't for those outside the church, but for those within the church. But as such needs arose within the church, within the body, they'd sell things that they owned, even big things like property, to, to care for those who were in need and care for one another. Now, obviously, well, I say obviously, but more or less essentially, context is so key here. As their culture and our culture aren't really a one-to-one comparison, which means not everything translates as a means of application exactly the same way. But the overall theme of generous, sacrificial giving, that does translate. This theme translates both cross-culturally and cross-time. See, some church members in Jerusalem, they clearly own homes and property, right? That's obvious to see. Which means that if that's the case, then they're a part of at least a small middle class that would have made up roughly maybe 10% of the population at the time. Or maybe they're a part of the upper class, which made up a part of maybe 4 to 7% of the population at the time. Either way, nearly or over 80% of the population were considered poor. And by poor, like poor, which is radically different from our cultural context. Almost a complete flip from our cultural context. As about only 11% of American population today live in actual poverty. That's not to say that we don't have... uh, you have to live below the poverty line in order to be in need. That's not to say that at all. No, there's great disparity in our country, even among what we would consider the working middle class. 
I'm simply pointing out that for most of us, our basic needs are being met. As of right now, we can get a job and not have to face much, if any, persecution in the process. But when you couple the poverty of the church in Jerusalem with the increasing levels of persecution they were experiencing, persecution that left like many believers socially isolated within their culture, making it be like, I'm not hiring that guy. No, he's associated with the Christian church. I'm not hiring him. Well, that made it harder for even the poor to, to get a job, which means it's harder then for them to be able to put food on the table, and they're already being hit disproportionately because of their poverty. And this made up a significant percentage of the church. And then what happens, though, from the church? The church responds to care for its own. Responds with those who have the ability to sell property, selling it. Bringing the proceeds to the apostles, and then the apostles distributing the proceeds to those who were in need. So like a benevolence fund. So this, this could have been extra property that they owned, maybe downsized to make it possible. I don't know. But either way, they gave generously and sacrificially to care for those among them who were in need. Living with the mindset of, what's mine is yours. And this wasn't just a church in Jerusalem thing. This generosity spread as the gospel advanced. Paul telling the church in Corinth about the generosity of the church in Macedonia. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Turn, in fact, turn there with me, if you will. Second Corinthians chapter 8. And what, that way you can see this for yourself. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Here in Acts, just kind of flip forward a little bit. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. He's like, you got to hear this. <laughs> For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So notice, notice how it says, that they gave out of their extreme poverty. Giving according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. This isn't forced upon them. This isn't something they, they told you have to do this. No, they're begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in this. Like, please let us give. And the question is why? What? What being, like, what is the motivation behind such an earnest desire to give? Well, I believe the answer is found in verse 9 of the same chapter. Just look down with me there. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
their motivation being to follow the example of Christ and respond to the great grace that they had been given through Christ. So as recipients of such great grace, they want to lavish great grace and great care upon their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I have to ask, can this be said of us as a church? Our benevolence needs aren't nearly the same as what they were within the early church. But we still give collectively as the church through our tithes and offerings. Some going to benevolence to meet such needs as they arise. But all going in one way or another to fulfilling the mission of the church. To making disciples of all nations who who love God and love people. And this requires the, the generous and sacrificial giving of the body as a whole to make this happen. Not just a few, but the whole. Even our, our weekly gatherings such as this, they could not happen, at least in, in this way, without the church's collective generous and sacrificial giving making it happen. Going from the giving of resources to the giving of time, the setting up of the chairs and everything that goes in the process. Not us giving out a sense of legalism or with the thought that this is going to earn us favor with God if we do, but out of a heartfelt response to the great grace we have received through Christ. We give in response to what we have been given. It's just what Christians naturally do. This is being who we are, giving generously according to our means and even sacrificially beyond our means. And I know this describes many within our body for which I am so thankful. But ask yourself this morning, does this describe you? Are you and your family generously and even sacrificially giving in response to God's grace, both of your time and your talents and your treasures? Not just picking one or two, but just collectively. Does that describe you? But that's not the only way we care for one another, is it? Not being just materially. No, we also care for one another how? Spiritually. As genuine care extends beyond just providing a meal or paying a bill, it's meeting someone where they are at spiritually. It's meeting someone where they're at emotionally. It's bearing with someone else's burdens, even in great difficulty. It's encouraging one another in Christ to persevere in the faith. It's taking time not just to say, hey, I'll be praying for you, but to actually stop and to pray with the person, to call them up and to have that call, to pull aside and to pray, pass along a a word of encouragement, to send a note. Take Barnabas as an example here in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we'll be looking at Barnabas quite a bit more through our journey through Acts. He's mentioned 29 different times, so we're going to have to look at him even more. But this being the first, but here's what we know about Barnabas. 
He was a generous encourager. Thus his name. That's what they called him. <laughs> like, you get a nickname because of who you are, right? And like, he's called encourager. He's faithful, a faithful brother in Christ. A Levite by descent, a, a native of Cyprus, which means that while he was an ethnic Jew, he wasn't from Jerusalem. He, like so many others who have come to faith in Christ, is, is from the nations. But Barnabas, as we'll see, is who will later accompany Paul on his first missionary journey. He will, with Paul, proclaim the great power of the gospel. But it's also Barnabas who will come along the wounded, like he does John Mark. Mark experiencing a, a sharp disagreement with Paul. Enough that he and Paul have to part ways. What's Barnabas do? What's this encourager do? He lovingly comes alongside Mark, encourages him, extends grace to him, and helps bring reconciliation to whatever disagreement existed. But here in our text today, we, we see how he sold a field that belonged to him. And then he brought 100% of the proceeds, and he gave it to the apostles. He used this to care for those who have need. He didn't hold anything back, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, who we're going to look at next week. Which is why Barnabas is a perfect example of everything we see in our text today. Just imagine a church that's full of Barnabases. Everybody's a Barnabas. Uniquely, so not everybody's named Barnabas. Not everybody's wearing the same shirt. <laughs> but in their own individuality, living out the attributes of a Barnabas. What a light that would be. What a light that would be as he was kind. He was generous. He was warm-hearted. He gave freely of his time and his talents and his treasures for the cause of Christ. And so I ask this morning, could this be said of you? Could this be said of us? Are you, are, are we collectively generously sacrificial in our giving of our time and our talents and our treasures to the cause of Christ? Are we generously sacrificial in, in caring for both the material and spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we desire to do whatever it takes to, to, to make the great grace we've received known to a lost and dying world? Does this describe you? Does this describe us? I think one way to think about it is, what if everyone, what if everyone within the church gave and served and cared the same way you and your family do? For some of you, that, that would be amazing for our church. But can that be said of everyone? What would our church look like if everyone gave and served and participated the way your family does? How bright or how dim would our light be as a church? Would the world know we are Jesus' disciples if all they knew was your love towards your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Will they notice a difference? 
how attractional would our light be as a church if our church was made up exclusively of people like your family? What would that be like? Friends, I hear a message like this. You know what I'm thankful for? God's great grace. Because we've all fallen short. None of us have reached a bar and said, I'm there. Because if we respond to a message like this with pride and say, oh, this church would be great. (laughs) We probably need a little bit more humbling of God's grace. We all have room to grow. Because we're not trying to be like Barnabas. We're by the grace of God striving to be like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we we open up your word and we're continually taught by your word simplistic truths that land like a bucket of dynamite. Lord, when we ponder your great grace, And then we look upon a world of such need, of such hopelessness. Lord, I pray that we will desire to be an attractional light that is bringing glory to you. Help us to persevere. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be, again, that attractional light in every way of good health to draw a lost and dying world to you. Help us to care for one another within this body and let us do so for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.